0: Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Sentry Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that'll tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Sentry Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, and marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group realtor Rick Lindsay, a guy that can take care of just about any of your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area. The Hedgecock Group has been in Fairbanks' North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their service is tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. Now, Rick has lived in Fairbanks for a long time and understands a lot of the less obvious ins and outs of buying and selling property around here. You know, things like water holding tanks and permafrost and all that jazz. Fairbanks is a really unique place to live, and having a realtor that knows what to look for in a quality place can make all the difference. Rick's a Marine Corps veteran and will work hard to get you exactly what you need. And if you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Rick at 907-378-6780 and go check out his Instagram at R-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y 113 at R Lindsay 113. He's really a passionate outdoorsman. He's just like us. He's one of us. And he loves to share his adventures on there. And he's got a pretty a pretty nice cranker of a RAM that I'm jealous of. So go check him out. I know there's lots of you out there that dream of moving to Alaska, but it's a big step and can be kind of intimidating. Landing a solid job before you move can make things run a lot smoother, but you might not be sure of the job market or even really where to look. Now, if you're an experienced ASC certified or GM factory trained technician, I've got good news for you. Chevrolet GMC of Fairbanks is looking to hire qualified service department techs, and they've got enough work to keep you pretty much as busy as you want to be. Fairbanks Chevy has a very busy shop, but they allow for flexible scheduling. They offer top market pay rates with paid overtime, a great benefits package with 401k retirement plan with contribution matching, and you know, for a service tech, you can really make a good solid living. They, they can offer relocation assistance to help get you up here, paid training to get you spun up, and they have a well-lit and well-maintained facility. And these are all things that, I mean, help contribute to a great work atmosphere. On top of all that, they make it a priority to allow you to take your vacation time during hunting season, something that is really tough in the in the service and construction industries here in Fairbanks and can sometimes be a deal breaker for folks like us. Good help and hard workers are always welcome in Fairbanks. And if this is the opportunity you've been waiting for, apply at FairbanksChevy.com or call their service manager, Rick Lindsay directly at Uh Uh 907-215-6444. That's how you do it. All right. Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, still trying to get through my first cup of coffee, so I'm not like firing on all cylinders yet this morning. But um, yeah, today I have Kevin Fraley, a real doctor.
1: Uh, I love <laughs> that.
0: Not a medical doctor, but a, P, a real P, a genuine PhD here. Um, a fish doctor. Fish doctor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, man, we uh, well, we were just talking, and I was, think- I was thinking about, I was like, man, when did we actually meet you? And it was like, t- no, more than probably like 13, 14 years ago, maybe, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think like maybe 2012, somewhere around there, we just had some mutual friends that we hung out with. And yeah. we've kept up with each other on Facebook a little bit since, but haven't really met in person since then. So, yeah, yeah cool, no, we're catching up now.
0: Yeah, no kidding, man. Uh, well, I remember... Because I remember back in the day, you were like, you've always been pretty fish crazy. And you were like in college, well, we were in college, you were in college, you were doing fisheries stuff. And, uh, it was like you and musky Mike, I don't know if he was there. I just, I think it was him one time. I had got like a brand new, like nice Cabela's three weight fly rod. And I'm pretty ignorant on this stuff. And I just had got, had just got it, had it in the truck. And I saw like Mike was there and he's just you know, crazy. So I'm just like, Hey, set this up for me. <laughs> and so <laughs> I knew it would be done right. pretty well. <laughs> yeah. yeah he,
1: he hasn't changed at all. He works for a big raised fly shop here in town now. And nice. And I employ him uh, in the summer for like fisheries research projects, but he's still the same, uh, fish crazy guy. So yeah. So cool what, dude.
0: um, I guess before we get into what you do, what you get to do for fun slash work. Um, so what, like, yeah, give me some background on you. Did you grow up here? In Fairbanks?
1: No, I grew up uh, in Kalispell, Montana, right near Glacier Park, right near the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Uh, my dad was a fish biologist, always had us kids out in the the outdoors, hiking, hunting, fishing. So um, he would read us uh, Bob Marshall's Alaska Wilderness book about like, yeah. his travels um, hiking, you know, hunting that sort of thing up near Wiseman. And so that really kind of fired my imagination about Alaska. And I just applied at the university of Alaska Fairbanks on a whim because they had a good fisheries program and I knew that's what I wanted to get into. Yeah. Got some good scholarships and ended up there. Um, and came, I guess I moved up here in 2008 and pretty much been here since, except for a few years where I went over to New Zealand to do the PhD and then came back.
0: So. Oh, nice. That, uh, yeah. cow is where guy that makes the bows I shoot. Lives. Oh, cool. Neil Jacobson.
1: Yeah, for a small, fairly small town. lakeside, but is like
0: the it's the biggest the biggest area. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's quite a few different um, outdoor brands, like um, some rifle companies that are based out of there too. So, for a small town, it has quite a bit going on. I guess an outdoor recreation field. So,
0: yeah, it's. uh, Well, just recently made my first trip to Montana. It was pretty. I thought, like flying flying over it, I'm like, man, you could walk everywhere. <laughs> that was just just like look at all that dirt. Yeah. That's <laughs> my one of my biggest thoughts which that's kind of my thought like anytime I go to normal places.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's so many roads everywhere, so many trails there, and just a lot of people in the outdoors. Every yeah. time I go back, there's like more people in these spots where I remember nobody being when I was younger. Yeah, but it's sort of like um, Oregon and Idaho where there's just a lot of people that have moved in from out of state, and it's nice to see a lot more people in the outdoors, but not in your favorite spots. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it's yeah, it's a tough balance. Like it seems seems like we're, I mean, fortunately, pretty insulated insulated from it here, um, just because of the difficulty of getting. lot of places but uh yeah definitely tough balance to strike so you yeah fisheries here um i don't know if i ever and you i'm assuming you got into fisheries out of like just an unhealthy obsession with fishing right (laughs) pretty
1: much yeah my dad you know had me like looking at aquatic insects and fish from an early age and I wanted to do something, you know, in the biology realm, and uh, fish just made sense. Like I looked at wildlife biology too, but uh, I think, you know, in, in Alaska, there's so many jobs for fisheries just because of all our commercial subsistence mm-hmm. uh, fisheries here. It's a great field to be in in Alaska, so that's kind of what I ended up going towards as I went into school. Um, so I did my undergrad in fisheries and uh, at UAF, then masters here too. And I got an awesome project. I got to like fly fish for rainbow trout in the Susitna drainage. Put radio tags in them and then track them through different seasons to nice, see where the they. Steel
0: hook and line researcher? yeah. Yeah, I try to. <laughs> I try to you know
1: do as many projects as I can, writing that into the into the plans. So. That's
0: nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure it's a good argument for low impact. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it can be the most efficient and it's more way. fun. It's definitely more <laughs> fun, and it can be the most efficient way sometimes to get the fish that you want for a project. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I would. Am- is it, is it like any, which it's fine if we get off in the weeds. That's where this podcast lives. Um, but uh, is it, a lot of times those things are specific. I mean, you're just like want to catch rainbows and tag them. Are there any more specifics? I mean, if you were going to go with some kind of like, I could see it being a lot less efficient to go with some sort of net in a lot of places. Because you can't get, you know, whether electroshocking or whatever it may be, probably much more difficult just to move all your shit to like get it there and do your stuff
1: yeah totally and and fish like the the rainbow trout too they get fished so much so they're very picky on what they're biting so Mm -hmm. sometimes they're only going for like the beads or the flies that you're using yeah um and then also if you're catching them with that gear usually it's pretty low impact like if you catch them in a net they might get torn up a little bit yeah um, be stressed out whereas Mm -hmm. with the the fly rod or fishing rod you can bring them in pretty quick and then do the surgery to implant the transmitter and get them on their way without you know as much with as little stress as possible, obviously there's going to be quite a bit cause you're cutting them open and sewing them back up. But yeah. Um, yeah. So it can be good for that. Just minimizing stress when you're bringing yeah. in the fish. What do you
0: do? Like walk me through, like putting those transmitters in. I've, I, I know one guy that's caught a well caught a pike with the transmitter. I've caught like tagged ones, but that looks like just a little like barbed tag that you put in by their dorsal fin or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the radio transmitters typically, if like if you're fishing, and the only thing you would notice maybe is this this wire that's kind of sticking out of their their belly. Basically, yeah. that's the antenna that sends the signal. Um, typically, you know, if you're if there's somebody's tracking it from a plane or from a boat, you can hear that from maybe like a quarter mile to two miles away, depending on mm-hmm. the water and the terrain. But um, so yeah, so if you're you're catching a, a fish to do the the radio tag surgery, you put them in this this anesthetic bath. There's this chemical. It sort of smells like Clove um, oil—it's just like a commercialized clove oil type thing—and that kind of knocks them out, and um, so they're just sort of anesthetized but still breathing, still doing okay. And then you just put them upside down in this cradle. And what we did was we had somebody with a turkey baster pouring water on their gills to make sure they were still breathing well and everything. Yeah. Taking then take a scalpel and you cut an incision in their belly. Um, insert the tag and then there's this kind of complicated, it's called a grooved needle technique to get that wire out the back end of the fish Mm -hmm. and then you you suture the... um, incision back up, let the fish. Um, you sort of hold the fish in fresh water without anesthetic, wait for it to uh, recuperate. That usually takes five to ten minutes, and then just make sure the fish is all good before releasing it back into the water.
0: Yeah, you're not just like throwing them off the boat.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, those tags are kind of expensive, a couple yeah. hundred bucks a piece, and then it takes a while. So you feel like you're invested in the fish, so you want to make sure it uh, to the best uh, of your abilities that it gets out of there okay. So,
0: oh, yeah, well, it doesn't do probably, I mean, you just, I imagine you get just such better data sets if you, like, have high survival rates for your fish.
1: Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the fish will, like, uh, eject the tag, especially yeah. during the uh, females during spawning. They'll Their body will reject it, but usually it'll stay in, and, and those tags will transmit from, like, one to three years. Oh, cool. Depending on the battery life and how you do different settings, so... Um, so for my master's project in the Susitna, we would go out in the summer um, every week and track from the raft and then on the Willow Creek primarily. And then um, every month we'd go up in a, like a super cub um, guy out of Cantwell. He would fly us down there and we'd hit all the tributaries once a month to see where the trout were, uh, were hanging out. So
0: nice. That's was cool. A,
1: yeah. a Very cool project.
0: Yeah. I imagine you'd get a little insight into like the fish behavior and yeah, it's a little bit of mutual benefit for your fi- your fishing <laughs> Not not like knowing, like, oh, that hole's a good hole, which, yeah like, whatever, but um, just, like, knowing what to look for.
1: Exactly, what type of habitat they're using. Yeah. Uh, those rainbows are just so associated with woody debris, big log jams. Like, um, that's where we found a lot of them. And then when the king salmon come in in July, they're just, like, right on those king salmon eating the eggs. Yeah. Uh, so they really follow those those salmon around. Um, but yeah, I, I should have, uh, you know, kept some of the locations so I could go in the winter where they're hanging out and do a little ice fishing, but that yeah. might be a little unethical, I guess.
0: So. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a line there, but they are fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, you, know, and like I don't know, most you know like people catching it's not like you'd be filling buckets up with them like no they're all, mostly catch and release anyway exactly
1: yeah yeah that's yeah, it's mostly catch and release for those rainbows down there but the idea was um so they're sort of managed all together in this is sitting a river um as like one big subpopulation and that's kind of what we found is that uh, fish were moving in between tributaries mm-hmm. although um you know the kind of what you'd expect like montana creek Um, Talkeetna River and Clear Creek and then Willow Creek, there was a lot of hooking scars. Those fish had mangled jaws, Uh, you know, maybe one eye was missing or something from all the fishing pressure, whereas like places like the Keshwitna River or other ones further out, um, there was less percentage of hooking scars. So not too too, um, surprising, but, you know, kind of nice to document that and and you can get an idea of what the impact of the angling is on those fish.
0: Yeah. Well, yes, spots that are like combat fishing, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I mean I'd say not say few fish would make it make it through there unscathed, but it's definitely uh, yeah, I could see that being a real a real thing higher percentage of fish getting dinged up
1: yeah a lot of a lot of fish with one eye and then you know when they were on their spawning beds we'd we'd come up and find them and you could like get up really close to them on their blind side so obviously oh, they yeah. were um you know much more susceptible to predation from an eagle or a bear or something like that yeah so that definitely has an effect maybe the like the jaw scars and that sort of thing not so much but yeah when they lose an eye that's probably that's a- from
0: getting is the the times i've seen that happen is like a you know, like a bigger single hook up through the top of the mouth and out out the eye probably is the
1: yeah that's the way and then um, a lot of people do the bead fishing so the bead is up on the line a little bit and the hook dangles down and sometimes that hook just swings around and lodges right in the eye oh yeah uh, it's supposed to be so that they grab the bead and then the hook kind of gets stuck on the outside of their mouth so that they don't swallow it deeply but okay. sometimes it doesn't work right and it goes into the eye so
0: yeah I read some uh, some story a long time uh, a long whiles back. I think it was like on an airplane or something when they used to have the fish Alaska magazine in their, in the airplane. They, uh, um, maybe it was Raven or something. I don't know. I haven't flown with them in a while, but, uh, it was like about using circle hooks on King, you know, like for egg fishing Kings. That was pretty, just pretty interesting how they figured that you had a, like a, a much better survival rate or like, you know, lower, like just cleaner, you know, hook and corner of the mouth
1: yeah with those circle hooks yeah circle hooks yeah i guess i didn't think of that as long as it doesn't go into the all the way into the belly and then yeah. lodge somewhere but usually yeah. those circle hooks are getting them in the corner of the mouth which yeah. is good
0: it's like they because the only thing i remember with about circle hooks or hearing about them is like you don't you don't set you set the hook you'll yank it right out you gotta exactly. like let them pull it into their and it that gets a, they could put it in their mouth and then they get some because it pops back out and gets them when they turn or something.
1: Yeah. It's hard to uh, kind of recalibrate your thinking. Like when you go halibut fishing on a charter or something and you're using a circle hook, you want to set the hook like you're jigging or something, but you got to think differently. Just, you just keep pressure on it until they sort of hook themselves and then you just reel up. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I often just try setting the hook and lose the fish when I'm using a circle hook.
0: (laughs) The old bill dance. Yeah. Some, Yeah, it's – are you an aggressive hook setter or – Definitely, yeah. uh, Yeah, the the Bassmasters.
1: Yeah, definitely. People better watch their their eyes if I'm setting hooks, you know, nearby. Yeah. (laughs) Wear wear eye protection.
0: stuff. Well, I mean, shoot, just in general, like any kind of – I mean, even you could argue, like, I mean, I don't really do it ice fishing, but, man, wearing a good – just shades is – pretty like i mean you've probably had a lot of close calls i've had some close calls just where wearing shades you know keeps you from getting even just getting dinged in the eye with a sinker or something
1: exactly Yeah, it's always good to have those uh, that eye protection because if you're handling a fish or it just you know flips around or something it's real easy for that that, uh, line to just slingshot back at you with the hook and the split shot so
0: yeah it's uh pretty nuts so you, you got your masters doing rainbows yeah and uh I don't think I ever heard anything about New Zealand, like, I don't know. Yeah, so um, yeah. Tell me about New Zealand. What what were you doing down there? Yeah, so because that has some like led like big time trout fishing. Oh yeah, that's why that's
1: why I went there for that and the hunting basically. But and (laughs) I got a good education too. But um, yeah, so I did my PhD in New Zealand in aquatic ecology. So it wasn't quite like the fly fishing type fun stuff, but more like a lot of the electrofishing, so running electric current in the water and then seeing what kind of fish were in there. And in New Zealand, there's a lot of these little native fish and Mm -hmm. then a lot of non-native trout. And these big native eels that are catadromous, so they move in between uh, like fresh and salt water, kind of Mm -hmm. the opposite of what salmon do. So it was a really cool set of fish to work with. They even have Chinook salmon down there, runs of Chinook salmon that had been introduced. Um, And so a lot of what I was doing was looking at how the trout and the native fish interacted, um, because sometimes they can compete or the trout can eat those native fish, and then how like um, agricultural... I guess like the land cover, where they do a lot of sheep and cattle and dairy um, there, how that was affecting the fish communities. So, not quite as um, as fun as the rainbow trout stuff, but you know, important in its own right. Yeah. Um, and
0: well, they got brown like rainbows and browns and stuff and like those fit, well rainbow trout and brown trout are super aggressive fish
1: yes um those those ones in new zealand are super smart uh really hard to catch and they're they're in like these really clear streams and it's almost like hunting when you go after them you hike up river and you're actually trying to spot the fish in the water because it's so clear and these are you're, large so you're,
0: so you're you're hiking you're trying like i would imagine you're trying to spot them from downstream so they're yep. facing upstream so they can't see you yet yeah, exactly. Right.
1: You always want to go from downstream up because they're they're facing into the current, so they won't see you. Um, you know, as as easily going upstream. But people like wear camouflage. You know, you sneak down, yeah. you, you crouch down to get as close as you can. It's just like hunting, almost like almost like bow hunting, because you have to get pretty close and you you have to use quite a bit of stealth. And it's it's crazy because if there's somebody on the river in front of you, you might as well just quit for the day. Like if somebody's hiking up in front of you, oh, so because
0: they're blasting everything. Yeah,
1: uh, once a fish gets um, spooked or caught, it's not gonna it's not gonna bite again for days sometimes there was a study there in new zealand that um even if a fish was just spooked by an angler sometimes they don't feed again for a few days so um,
0: so they're saying they're a lot smarter than pike
1: they're crazy (laughs) smart there i don't know why the fish like aren't like that in the U S but, um, yeah, but then they're, they're also on average, very large. And so, yeah, it's a very challenging fishery. The rainbow trout, they're a little more forgiving. You can catch them on like cicada flies, mouse yeah. flies, sculpins, and they're a little more aggressive. And then those Brown trout are just super smart and wary and you have to go through your fly box to, to be able to catch them usually. So,
0: yeah, well that would work out well for me. Cause uh, since I was a little kid, I've been like a, pr- uh, a chronic lure changer, Okay, well like you, yeah, chronic. you do well. like when I in to my own to my own detriment, my dad would is I was I was obsessed with fishing when I was a kid. I mean, we had like the like the shittiest fishing you could imagine, like I mean, almost you know if you'd go and catch like a couple rainbows in a day, it was like I thought it was we were having a good day. My dad who grew up here was like, yeah, no. <laughs> but uh yeah, I had my whole whole tackle box full of lures and I'd just you know, two or three casts and then change. Like I just couldn't help myself. That's the I'm opposite
1: st- philosophy to me. Like if I find one that works, I'll just fish it till it's bedraggled and beat yep. up and like yep. doesn't even look like a lure anymore.
0: Yep. But I'm yeah. I just yeah. I was over overthinking it. You know, my dad was. You can't fat. You can't catch fish without your line in the water, you know? <laughs> which is true. So uh, no, that that's pretty cool. Um, I do. Well, I reminded you know fishing like that reminded me of fishing grayling on some of these streams like i've not everywhere because it seems like grayling can be kind of stupid when they don't they're not pressured but um some of these local streams i used to fish a lot it would i definitely would notice like if they saw you they would not but like they might not spook they might not like swim away but they wouldn't bite
1: yeah definitely uh i noticed that there's a with coho salmon there's a stream uh to the east of fairbanks where people often are used to go before um, all that kind of got closed down but every time like a boat would go past or somebody would um cast to a pot of fish it'd be like 20 minutes until they started feeding again they might yeah. not leave the area but they just would yeah. be you know dormant for a little bit before they started feeding again so. yeah
0: it's like yeah something yeah something in their little fish brain tells them don't <laughs> don't eat that it's yeah. not safe <laughs> but um And well, it's funny too because it seems like sometimes grayling would be just like not, they're notoriously not picky fish. Right. But some, like, I've had some days where I'm just like, like the old beaded prince nymph is like my ultimate grayling go to but then some days they won't even touch that and they're like only want dry flies. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Certain streams, especially like ones East of Fairbanks that really get pressured a lot, they, it does get a little bit more technical for those grayling yeah. uh, because they do see a lot of flies. So sometimes you do have to go with really small little midges or, or um, wet flies to, to get them to bite.
0: So. Yeah. Um, probably the, one of the coolest things I think I saw was, uh, well, uh, uh, wildlife biologist (laughs) was it told me uh he was fishing fishing the stream he's like oh man you know when i took my kid out fishing and it was a spot where you keep grayling we kept a couple to eat and cut them open and they were full of uh, shrews
1: oh yeah that's so cool
0: and you know you wouldn't think a little like 13 inch grayling could eat (laughs) it like a shrew or a vole but like they were packed full of them so i was like wow so i made i rigged up i had a you know a a mouse fly that i cut the big hook like cut the end of the big hook off and i think we i tried me and frank tried different stuff but i think the one i ended up with was a like a little fly size hook tied on to the tail and it i mean yeah this little tiny stream just like cats start dragging that thing as soon as that thing started like Started pop- popping that thing across the water. Those grayling could just like oh, suck it down, and that's cool. You eventually like caught a couple of them on it, but it was the challenge was like getting them hooked.
1: Yeah, getting them to bite hard enough to stick on the hook. You hurricane. know, so
0: I don't know if they like pull them under the water and then drown yeah. them, and just kind of keep a hold of them till they can get them around and yeah, maybe suck them down. But that's really without cool, any though. fingers or hands to to help that. It was pretty pretty impressive you know that's like a classic trout thing but yeah i never would uh, i never would have guessed for great grayling that they'd be eating shrews and voles
1: that's pretty cool that you saw that yeah that's a good bit of protein for those grayling, a lot better than eating you know 50 flies go eat one shrew and you oh, get a yeah. lot more bang for your buck <laughs> yeah
0: no kidding <laughs> it's pretty cool no kidding um so yeah what uh was there any uh any like takeaways any like really cool stuff down in new zealand you um, learned
1: Yeah. You know, we just found that like the pastureland areas, the more pastureland in a uh, river drainage, um, kind of the it would affect the the food web in different ways. You'd see uh, like the chemistry within fish muscle tissue change a little bit. So, just getting at some of the impacts of the you know pretty intensive dairy farming that goes on mm-hmm. there. Um, another thing we looked at was how. There's a lot of places where they take water away from the river to um, irrigate fields, yeah. just how those um, those dams and the water um, abstractions, we call them, affect fish downstream and found that there's a little less species diversity right below those dams. But the native fish actually do better um, in those areas that are a little bit dewatered compared to trout. Trout typically like deeper water, colder water. Um, and they're a little more wary about humans, whereas the native fish can actually like live up under the rocks and um, they're very resistant to drought and to low water. So in those areas, it, there was sort of the illusion that they were doing better, even though overall, you know, that uh, removal of water was probably not good for the fish, especially areas where the, like the, sometimes those streams go completely dry yeah. in New Zealand um, because, you know, the farmers have the right to just pull all the water if they want to. Um, and so, yeah, the I guess... It's kind of weird over there because the trout, some people call them like the rats of the river because they're all non-native. They eat the native fish. Yeah. So some people really hate trout. But of course, me, I love fishing. So um, I love them. So it's sort of like a weird thing. They're almost like pike in South Central Alaska where they're non-native, but people it's really like, love, to love to I love to fish
0: catch them, but they, yeah. but they shouldn't be here. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it was kind of a weird place to be, especially um, in the biological sciences field. Like all my colleagues, none of them were fishermen and they all hated trout. I was like, yeah. <laughs> It was just me and a couple other American students that really love trout fishing. Your cat,
0: your ca- <laughs> yeah, I could see that you're, you know, you're catching them, like appreciated this thing and they're like thumping on, throw it up on the bank yeah. or something. Yeah, get rid of that. them all, you know,
1: but uh, yeah. Um, and then down there, obviously the hunting was awesome too. Like there's no closed seasons, no bag limits in most places and they have the Himalayan tar, red deer, uh, the European chamois, um, pigs, wallabies, so I, you know, went around and took advantage of all those opportunities as much as i could on a student salary of course but
0: well did they because i'm sure do they have places i mean not i you know places you can just go go hunt you know you're not you're not it's not like you would have to hire guide or or no um outfitter i don't know like I, i know some people from new zealand that listen to the podcast are probably like you're an idiot, Tyler. But no, no, people I don't. I kind of am, so. <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, I mean, you. W- I wouldn't expect people to know about it if they haven't kind of dove into that, but yeah, yeah there's a lot of these big um, Department of Conservation lands that are open to public hunting. Mm-hmm. Usually all you have to do is just find the block of land that you want to hunt on and then do an online registration that's oh, free. Oh, nice. Um, the, the one challenge if you're coming from overseas and hunting is, is getting access to a firearm, basically. Yeah. I'm not sure how it would work if you tried to bring one over. Um, like, I lived there for three years, so I was able to just get a New Zealand firearms license which was pretty easy i just took mm-hmm. a little like one night course uh, the police came and inspected my flat or my apartment to make sure i had a safe place to store uh, the firearms, which is basically like this metal bar, locking metal bar, is all yeah. you really need. And then uh, you get your license, and you can go out and you can purchase your your firearms, not handguns, unless you're going to like just a handgun range, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and and also suppressors, you can buy without any extra. Like, yeah, um, <laughs> that's the point
0: of frustration. <laughs> it's really nice because
1: uh, here I, I'd like to get one, but it's uh, so expensive, and you have to go through the like the, what is it, the ATF process yeah. to to do that. But which there, that's been
0: that's been the e-form stuff and, like, some of the, like, business, I mean, industry has, like, made it as easy as it can be. Okay, yeah. Right now, because you can do, like, when I first got my first one, like, I did, I mean, growing up, I didn't think you could even get them. You know, I thought, you know, I'll, you here just they're just this mysterious thing that, like, you know, you need a special, and I didn't know anybody with one or anything like that, but it was, uh, yeah, like, maybe... It was right during during that time where I ha- I don't think I'd, I'd maybe like seen one or two, and a buddy I made friends became friends with a guy who was a class three dealer, and you had to like get the you know they which they still like you're the dealer has to get the suppressor transferred from the manufacturer to them, which takes like a little bit of time. Then you got to fill out the form four paperwork, get go like. To the police station get fingerprints done wow. passport photos then like you would have to take it to the troopers and drop it off there to get signed Jeez! and then you like put your 200 bucks and mail all that in and then whenever it decides to show back up you got it now that's they've got it to where um sentry hardware like frontier has a little kiosk and um alaska ammo has a kiosk like dealers like they'll get these kiosks where you can do your prints and photos that's nice and everything and it's all digital i mean yeah it's nice for a shitty situation It, it is much easier and then you just you're dealing with the weight which i know there's been a lot of like there's like good reason to like. There's no. I don't think there's any reason for suppressors to be like lopped in with machine guns.
1: Yeah, there's just that stigma you know? because in the movies it's always associated with criminals that have yeah. a, a suppressor <laughs> yeah. or something.
0: Well, it's like why I think federally like switch like auto knives or switchblade knives are still illegal. No, oh, okay. like one handed opening. Huh. Or um, I can't remember the exact thing. I have looked at it before, but <clears throat> and most of the states or a lot of the states have kind of like Alaska. I want. I wanted this one bench-made knife that was an auto knife and I wanted it bad, but you couldn't buy it. Like you couldn't buy it in the state cause it was huh. illegal in Alaska and illegal federally. Wow. And then the state had like eventually reversed, like got rid of that. So you see okay. them in the stores, but it's, I guess it's like weed, like still illegal federally, <laughs> but a lot of States are kind of like, yeah, this is not that big of a deal <laughs> anymore. Yeah.
1: Just don't cross state lines with it and you're okay. Probably. No,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, you're uh, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anybody, I don't even think the feds care. It's okay. just, it's just like in the law. It's but just sort
1: of a admin issue at this point. Yeah. But yeah,
0: but suppressors are, it's, it's dumb. They should be over the counter. It's yeah. it's like a, I mean, it's, my hearing would be better exactly. if I shot with suppressors my whole life as opposed to now. Yeah. <laughs> you you know, know, I wish I
1: was more diligent with earplugs and that sort of, and now you yeah. have those like really nice um, electronic uh, ears that kind of block out rifle shots yeah. or whatever, but you can still hear things, but and they're
0: not perfect. Either, no. You know, for most people, it's totally fine. Like I, I, well, I know if I went to a ear doctor, they would be telling me I need hearing aids because <laughs> Frank, well, Frank just got hearing aids this year. Okay. And he's like, well, you know, and I've no really noticed like in the way he described, you know, like going through the process, like, well, I can hear a bull moose grunt from like, a mile away like what's the deal yeah <laughs> and that's those sounds are like the last to go oh okay i guess it's like but i like have when there's a lot of no background noise i have problem like i have trouble understanding like what my kids are telling me if it's yeah. like if they're talking talk speaking quiet and whatnot so i have a little
1: I'm, bit of that too if there's multiple conversations going on sometimes i don't know if that's just or when like my from. wife's
0: voice like women's voice like the pitch mm, yeah is like a, a more difficult one to hear so I'm sure I, I sure I, could benefit from hearing aids. Whether I'll, I'll try to <laughs> hold off getting them for a while, but um, for me, like even the Electra, I need to start like upping, like even just double, like plugging and muffing because there's the volume of shooting I do. Yeah, even like every little bit, it's going to be cumulative.
1: You're doing a lot more than me, like testing different cartridges and rifles. So obviously, a lot mm-hmm. more shooting. Whereas I'm just sort of you know, hitting the range once in a while and yeah. hunting, but yeah, I'm sure you would, you, you are exposed to it a lot more than I am. So, yeah.
0: but that's a, yeah, just another digression, but yeah, yeah, you should be able to just go buy suppressors. Yeah. I don't it, think, I don't think New Zealand's having all sort of like suppressor crime.
1: No, definitely not. <laughs> and over there, if you like go hunting with someone and they have a suppressor and you don't, they just don't like hunting with you because you blow their ears out, you know, so yeah. it's hard to find a hunting yeah. partner if you don't yeah. use a suppressor. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, um, and over there, you know, like you can, like if I go hunt for tar, uh, Himalayan tar, you'd find a group of them. And if you had the suppressor, you could shoot more than one. And before they noticed that you were yeah. firing too, because it's so quiet, it just sounds like rock fall or something to them. So
0: yeah. And the, um, you know, cause all they're here and having had like bullets crack, like by over my head, all they're hearing is like the crack or, the, like, the impact. You yeah. Know?
1: I mean, there's still a report, but it's not too bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. It just sounds like a rock fall or something to them compa- yeah. as compared to this huge boom that obviously is not natural. So. Yeah.
0: And uh, so how do like, yeah, those tar, at, like, are they pretty, pretty t- spooky, pretty twitchy?
1: No. Well, it depends on where you go, but um, the ones I hunted were... Uh, As long as you, as long as you get above them, like most of those mountain animals, if you get above them, they're not going to be looking up really much for, um, for predators. So, uh, usually it's easy to spot them. Those tar are typically in groups, uh, like maybe a few males or just a big group of the nannies and young young ones. And so typically you go like around the backside of a ridge or something, get above them. And then, um, you kind of, they're just going to hang out there. Be
0: looking down for the most part.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're much easier to hunt than those chamois. Those things are like
0: crazy. (laughs) They just take off.
1: They're like a. They're like a pronghorn that lives in yeah. the, the mountains almost. It's sort of what they look like, and they're just incredibly agile and much more spooky than the tar. They were the probably the toughest animal to hunt in New Zealand was the chamois, but the tar are really cool because they're they're just on the South Island of New Zealand. They're in this really cool kind of like alpine grass tussock mm-hmm. habitat, really beautiful country to hunt in. Um the chamois are more in like this really nasty rocky stuff that you like could fall and hurt country. yourself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, that's cool. Um yeah, and well, there's no, there's no. I mean, humans are the only predators there. So, like, I was yeah. thinking of that because you know sheep, doll sheep, and even goats. You know, like they spend most of their time looking down, and I guess like just genetically, those tar because the, in the Himal, I mean, they got bears and wolves yeah, and stuff snow in the leopards Himalayas, or whatever leopards, they, yeah. They were so I'm for. sure that they, yeah, they just <clears throat> have inherited instincts to, to look down, but that's. Yep. That's pretty interesting. I keep getting bugged to go to New Zealand, and if I can find someone to pay for it, that's yeah, it'll be. I, I really want to go down there someday. I've
1: been talking uh, to Alan Morton. So, you know, I think you. Know, oh yeah, who, yeah. Who really know, wants Alan... to go there too. So I've been feeding him some info on places to go, but I don't know if he's actually pulled the trigger on going yet. But
0: yeah, there's no. a lot
1: of great public opportunities there. It's just the one challenge is getting a hold of a firearm once you get there. Otherwise, and then it's. Pretty much open from there. There's a few places where you have to like put in for they call it ballots, um, and so that means you just get a certain area of hunting all to yourself for a week period. But oh, then wow. there's a lot of areas that are just open open hunting. So yeah, do um, so they have elk down there? Uh, they have white-tailed deer on the Stewart Island, the southernmost island. They have uh, sika deer, which are from Japan, fallow yeah. deer. So lots of of strange hunting opportunities there. The wild pigs. Um, there's wallaby, a, a few areas. Yeah, and, I heard
0: rabbits are, like, huge.
1: Yeah, they're all non-native, too. So there's no native mammals to yeah. Australia, except for this this flightless bat or something. Is only yeah. <laughs> native mammals. <laughs> a so, flightless bat, yeah. that'd be
0: a shitty life, yeah. I would think. <laughs> I don't know
1: how that thing, uh, you know still is, is a thing, but, um, yeah, so all those, those mammals are pretty much open game because they damage the native vegetation. And, um, so yeah, you typically people are trying to knock back those numbers, especially the, the hares and the rabbits, yeah. they really are abundant and, and take down a lot of the native grasses and stuff.
0: So. Yeah. Do they, do you know if they get any, I mean, like kind of off the wall, do they have any, uh, cause I've heard it could be just totally making this up, but I've heard that like up here, you know, like our are hair cycles, obviously like the predator, you know, cat, cats primarily will fall cycle with the hares or in response to the hares. But um, I've heard a lot of it is uh, when the when the hares snowshoes start like over over feeding their stuff that those plant like this, the willows will produce like a toxin that kills them. <laughs> basically,
1: yeah. they kind of eat themselves out of their habitat, and that's when their abundance goes down or disease yeah. can hit them. And so they have that big. Wonder, cycle that do the they, links follow,
0: do they have? Is it just a constant battle with them? Or I wonder if they do they cycle at all, like in New in New Zealand?
1: I don't know. In New Zealand, they do really, but like, they don't have the
0: they, they really they have fox. No, they no they don't
1: really have any fox. Um, they have feral cats, oh, hedgehogs, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't, little eat native bird eggs and stuff. The feral cats can be pretty bad on native birds and stuff. But yeah, oh, there's not not too many predators. The pigs will will eat a lot of stuff of uh, native animals too, eggs and that sort yeah. of thing.
0: But cats are house cats are killers, man. Yeah, those things are anything that they can that's sized small enough for them to kill. Like they're 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 assassins. They're
1: lethal in New Zealand, and uh, the Department of Conservation has these huge trapping programs. They employ a bunch of trappers to go out and try to get as many of them, and hedgehogs, and these uh, Australian possums as they can a big industry there for trappers is you can go and trap those possums and then you pluck the fur yeah and you can sell the fur people make socks and you know woolen caps and all that sort of stuff with it so you can uh if you're a trapper you can sell the fur plucked fur by the kilo and make quite a bit of money i guess so.
0: oh man <laughs> <laughs> i never plucked a possum that'd be yeah it
1: sounds a little bit uh, of a pain in the
0: butt but... oh yeah for sure um and we're right now we're getting so you're probably like the first person every year in Fairbanks to get out ice fishing. Yeah, I would I have try to, to be, say. Yeah. <laughs> You're like <laughs> yeah, every year. It's funny because that's one of the things like you all your posts all pop up every year. Like belly crawled out onto this yeah. like <laughs> half inch of ice to like drill an ice hole and and already catching fish. Is that you like you like uh, what's your favorite type of fishing or do you just I, depends on the season. <laughs> yeah, it
1: depends on the season. I really like going after Burbid and Pike, but I think I I follow the Ricky Bobby philosophy. If you're not first, you're last. For yeah. <laughs> first ice. No, I'm just kidding. Um, definitely you gotta be safe on that ice and, and growing up in Montana, kind of I was always going out on the sort of sketchy ice, but trying to do my best to be safe, never have fallen through or anything. Yeah. Um, I always carry so there's these spikes you can wear around your neck. Uh, or you can just fashion something like that with a screwdriver, yeah. a couple of screwdrivers. And so if you fall in the the water through the ice, you can use those spikes, grab them, and you can claw mm-hmm. your way back out. Sometimes I'll wear a life a life vest if it's really uh, early. but um, And then always it's good to have another person that's at least yeah. observing like nearby to see if, if you fall in or something. Go, so. Yeah, yeah
0: yeah. Uh And
1: then of course the rivers are the most dangerous, the lakes a little less so, but if you fall under the river ice, you can really, um, you know, be screwed because the current will carry you under. So, yeah. So I try to stay off the river still. It's really safe, but, um, yeah, the lakes I'll go out with uh, just a couple inches of ice if I can. So
0: yeah, no river ice, river ice always scares me. That's like one of the few things I'll lay in bed at night and just like the, it's just like a, you, you ever had like those thoughts that, your mind wanders and it just scares you, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, going under the ice in a river scares me. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: And, and I had uh, an experience where I was checking Burbit lines on the, like the lower Chena river going mm-hmm. down to the Tanana late at night,
0: which is like inherently bad
1: ice. Yeah. Cause of the power plant and yeah. town kind of keeps things warm. And all of a sudden I found myself skipping on my snow machine on open water. Oh, man. Um, and I uh, hit like this berm on the edge of the other side. Luckily, I was able to stay on top of the water, but I just like catapulted off into the oh, snow man. on the other side. Really hurt myself. Fuck. And uh, sorry. Almost use a bad word there. Oh, you don't have to. You up. don't
0: have to. You can just sit. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're we're you're good. Okay. Anyway, I uh,
1: yeah screwed up the snow machine. It went tumbling, you know. And uh, um, so I am nowadays. I try to like if I'm snow machining out to check my berbat lines or whatever. I try to go in daylight so that I don't run into one of those open water leads without yeah. noticing. Um, but yeah, if you're out stuff there stuff like
0: that can open up just overnight, you know, yeah, in 30 below, like exactly. you get the temperature, that's why river, like river ice is scary. Cause they, the current, you know, current change is always like, change, maybe not always, but often changing underneath, underneath the ice and you get weird cause the, it, not even just temperature, but I think that sometimes like if the flow changes, like you can get or the, uh, you know, ice drops, you can get like, uh you know the current just eroding certain yeah. sections of ice and then it could be 40 below but and under open. the ice it's it's not 40 below no no <laughs> um
1: yeah, um, when the river sometimes drops and then the ice is sort of held up and there's this pocket underneath and then it caves in, that yep. can cause big open sections too. So you you always have to be careful. Um, what I've really relied on a lot is there's this satellite imagery that has like daily to weekly temporal resolution. So you can go online and for free you can look at different sections of the river yeah. and see where there might be open areas. Um, and then there's a a group at UAF called Fresh Eyes on Ice. They're always um, sending reports about open leads on the Tanana and that stuff around Interesting. on Facebook. So. What's
0: the, what's the uh, satellite deal? Is that like it's it called, easily?
1: Yeah, it's called Sentinel-2 Imagery. I can send you a link to it. I mean, it, okay, that that is like a game changer for uh, shoulder season. um you know, fishing and hunting and that sort of thing. Cause you yeah. can see when lakes or rivers open up and you can see when they freeze up. So like I uh, did a, an Arctic char fishing trip up on the Arctic slope last fall. And you know, that's a long drive to go up there. So you always want to like, you want to, I wanted to make sure that the water was still open. Cause yeah. it was like October 1st. So that's right around when things are freezing. Yeah, I just pulled up that imagery and I was like, okay, the lake I want to go to, you could still see it's dark black. It's not, doesn't have any ice. So I should be good for a couple of days. And you know, it would be really a shame to drive all the way up there and have it oh, be yeah. Yeah. or something and not
0: frozen enough to ice fish it or yeah. something. So you're, uh, which, uh, yeah. Why don't like that was one is that's where you had the picture of that char that was just like a pumpkin. Yeah. Basically.
1: Yeah. That was a cool fish. Um, so I, I, I went through the Tulik Research Station up on the North Slope there. They have a database with all these lakes and stuff. And so I kind of picked out a lake I wanted to go to, went out there. And uh, in the autumn, those Arctic char are, like, colored up in their spawning colors. That's mm-hmm. their spawning season. And so I wanted to find one of those really brightly colored ones. Um, I had seen a picture of a friend that had, had caught one. And it was crazy. Like, the water was super clear. And I saw one of them swimming around. It looked like a traffic cone swimming wow. around. It was so orange. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Um, and then it was almost like buck fever. I casted to it, and had this huge orange thing rushing at my fly. You know, like, it yank kinda... it right out of his exactly re- yank yeah. it
0: right out of his mouth. I've never done that. <laughs> yeah,
1: I did that several times just because I sort of had buck fever, you know, seeing that kind of a cool fish. I've like done that, that
0: with uh, so for a long time, um I, growing up, my uncle was like uh, he would he had a standing thing where he, he I don't think he ended up following through my uncle Jerry because my cousin Clint finally caught one. But he's like, if you catch an 18-inch grayling and you can, like, prove it was 18 inches, like, I'll pay to get it mounted. He's nice. like, I've caught a dump truck load full of grayling or, you know, whatever in his life. He's like, I've never caught one 18 that's inches. That's hard to get. And I had, and he, like, the biggest one I think I've ever caught was, like, 17 and a half, 17. I've caught a number 17 and a half to 17 and three quarters. And I think my my cousin eventually caught a 19-inch one. Wow. That's a, that's a really good one. Which is huge. But, yeah. like. Because it's like, I don't know, it's like any number of hunting things or, I mean, I've been taught, like, my work is a lot of shooting lately, especially. So, it's like, you know, the guys say, oh, my rifle shoots a half-inch group, you know. Like, everybody says that, but, you know, like, everyone says, oh, we're catching 19 and 20-inch grayling, (laughs) you know, or or even just to say... It's, and it's never like a 19 inch gray It's all, yeah, we catch 18, 19 yeah. inches all the time, you know, and that's just not true. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, let's, it's like, like shooting a, a 500 pound black bear. In, yeah. In I'm the always, interior.
1: I'm always skeptical of people that say they've caught a 20 incher, but you know, the, some people do like even locally, there's a. A few that get documented where uh, people like bring one into fishing game and get it measured and get a trophy certificate. So yeah. it happens, but I've never yeah. caught one that's twenty inches for sure. And no,
0: it's it. I think uh, you have to
1: go through a lot of grailing before you finally get one that's that big.
0: Oh, for sure, and it. Uh, but yeah, what I was getting at was there's been time, times grailing, especially you sneak up on one and you're like, it's just a big fatty. You're like, yeah. oh, that's a good, that's a contender right there, and <clears throat> you know, like a dry fly. Floating along, and then you see his mouth open and just yank it right yeah. out of his mouth. Well, in grayling, you got to be careful because their mouths are soft. You True, know, you yeah. Can, you can damage their you mouth. You can't go Bill Dance on them and like <laughs> just rip the fly right out of their mouth. But, yeah. uh,
1: old, uh, Musky Mike, he's yeah. a very strident hook setter. <laughs> he was, uh, catching, you know, he was a couple of years ago, he was catching king salmon. So he was used to these huge hook sets, oh, right? Yeah. We went out grayling fishing. He set the hook and, uh, this little grayling just went flying back over his shoulder, you know, <laughs> oh, into the brush. Man. So That's uh, funny. Yeah. Uh, you you got to be careful with them because they're a little more delicate than some yeah, of the fish. So. Yeah.
0: Um, well, and you, I mean, you get it like a 17, 18, 19 inch great, you know, 19 inch grayling. That's like a 30 year old fish.
1: Right. Yeah. They can be quite old. So, you
0: know, so it's pretty, uh, and they, yeah, they just grow real, real slow, I guess. hmm But, uh. I don't know where I was going with that. But the char thing. So you're actually fishing them fishing in lakes. Huh? Yeah. There's... I don't want to like plug. I'm not going to plug. I don't want to plug too much info. Yeah, no, but, no, But <clears throat> some of this stuff's really interesting to me, you know, because I, I would always think river, you know, you know, char char running in rivers. and I wouldn't think that they'd, you know, like what are conditions? Are they like obviously some kind of tie into a river system or just old, old lakes that were at one point tied in and fish just are in there.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. So there's uh, Arctic char and dolly varden, both very closely related. They can interbreed. The Arctic char are pretty much only associated with lakes, and then the dollies are those sea-run ones that you find in rivers. Okay. There's exceptions to that. Like sometimes the Arctic char can be found in rivers, but on the north slope, um, the lakes are going to hold the Arctic char, and then the dollies are going to be in rivers. So they they look pretty similar. Um, Those Arctic char will get a little more orange, a little brighter, and they have sort of a shorter snout. And then the dollies have sort of that big dolly like, we call it a kite, kind of a big, big jaws. There. Yeah. Um, so they're, both of them are up there. They're awesome fish, both of them. But yeah, those lakes have the Arctic char. See, um,
0: I never knew that. Like I always just assumed up, well, if you're north of the Brooks range, they're char.
1: Yeah, and uh, to make it more confusing, the whole group of fish that they're within is, is called char. So like bull yeah. trout, brook trout, lake, lake trout, trout um, Arctic char, Dolly Varden, they're all grouped together in the Salvolinus genus, which is the char genus. Yeah. But yeah, people argue a lot uh, about like what's a Dolly Varden, what's an Arctic char up there. So, and then if you talk to a geneticist, like the genetics folks at UAF, they say, well, they're all in the Arctic char complex. So they're all pretty much in the same. They're so closely related. So you don't
0: get a clear, you don't get a decide. You're not, if you're like trying to settle a bet, you're not going to
1: get it. It's really confusing. And it depends on who you talk to, a scientist or a fish and game biologist as to what they would call an Arctic char, what they'd call a Dolly Varden. So
0: interesting. Yeah, that's, that's cool. But yeah, that, that, that had to be some like something I would, uh. I need to make a point and go and go do that someday. There's a lot of like what's cool. I think you know fishing wise. I always like and it's probably a lot for work. You're like what's your your daily because it seems like you get to do a lot of trips where you're like hook and line, studying different stuff. Yeah. Um, So um, it seems like you take good advantage of (laughs) of a lot of like a lot of area because there's a lot of a, a lot of like area and unique like fisheries. I think in Alaska that are pretty much say untouched but like not utilized or no one you know yeah totally. like you could probably spend your whole life like going and fishing for different fish in different spots and, i think so and never really run out
1: yeah but for me um most of my work so i work for the wildlife conservation society as a fish biologist um, wcs is like this global nonprofit organization headquartered in new york do research and try to conserve wild landscapes, that sort of thing. We've got a small office in Fairbanks with like a mammal person, a bird person. I'm the fish guy. But a lot of what I do, I go out to Kotzebue and go into Cape Cruisenstern National Monument uh, twice a summer and look at fish diversity and abundance there. Um, Those are all like subsistence resources. So like she fish, humpback whitefish, saffron cod, arctic flounder are some of the main species catch out there. And for that, just looking at kind of the trends over different years, and then I've started to get some other projects funded. Uh, maybe the ones you've seen where where Musky Mike and I have been going up the the Dalton Highway, the Hall Road, yeah. and catching fish along there to see um, heavy metal contaminant loads in those fish. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of get a baseline before potentially something like the Ambler road or, or other developments might occur. You always want to see how things are, um, initially, especially with like the heavy metal, the mercury, lead, cadmium and fish. Um, yeah. you know, everybody's worried about that in Alaska cause we eat so much yeah. fish, so much wild foods. Um, so getting an idea of what's there now and then if it'll change.
0: Yeah. You gotta um, have, have a baseline. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then uh, been doing some she fish projects too, which has required a lot of rod and reel angling. Oh, whoa. Yeah, I'm you know, sure. But- <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
0: Whoa is me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, which, yeah, I want to talk about she fish a little bit in a minute too. Sure. But um, how do you, how do you, uh, how do, you te- do you pretty much have to like kill the fish to test for some of that like metal, heavy metal? Yeah, stuff. the most humane way is to
1: exactly. Yeah, the most humane way is to kill them. But you, what you can sometimes do is take a biopsy, so you like take a little punch and punch mm-hmm. into their muscle and get it. But that can cause a lot of pain and and problems for the fish, infections and, and that sort of thing. And typically, when we're doing research, we um, have like animal ethics. Um, committees that review our work and make sure we're not causing undue suffering and harm to animals without good reason. So typically it's, it's, um, better to just euthanize the fish rather than take those muscle punch samples, that sort of thing. So yeah, we're just, um, you know, we get a permit from fish and game to harvest a certain number of fish to make sure we don't damage the population. You yeah. know, they have a good idea of what should be allowed to be taken out of which water body. And so we, you, you know, they, they give us guidance on that. And then we just, um, yeah, send in muscle samples because that's what people are most interested in. That's what people are eating mm-hmm. to see what kind of, you know, heavy metals are in those, that sort of thing. So,
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. She Fisher, she Fisher super cool. Yeah. It's, uh, Probably my favorite fresh, like my, I don't know, maybe even because it'll give halibut a run for its money, even for eating. For eating, yeah,
1: yeah, they've got really nice white meat. Um, maybe a little oilier than halibut, but they smoke, super good they take eating. a
0: smoke pretty well. Yeah. They like they uh I the first time I ever caught a bunch of them was when I was working out in that place that I told you about at the working on the school out there, mm-hmm. and the general contractor had brought his boat out. And so every night after work for when the run was good, like we would go just cat, we'd go catch a bunch of she-fish. That's and awesome. And like, when
1: you find them, uh, the fishing is awesome. Usually like there's oh, yeah. a lot of them and they're aggressive. They bite really well. Cause they're so. pretty
0: like, they're not like a solitary type fish right. usually, right? They're yeah. Pretty, they're usually,
1: usually in big groups. Um, once in a while you'll find find them in small groups but especially during like their spawning migration they're going to be in big clusters so that's in the autumn they're a they're a whitefish species but they're, they're unlike a lot of the smaller whitefish that eat little bugs and that sort of thing she fish are predatory they eat other fish typically or even you know sometimes mice or frogs or whatever they can get yeah. a hold of because they got that huge bass like mouth they can yeah. pretty much engulf anything so
0: yeah no and it's uh it's all it's all it's cool the uh they seem to be like a lower like a Although I think, thought like just th- I, I think of one country, it was like a weird side, not even a slough, it was just overflow of a main like muddy river that we were like pulled up in to do something. And buddy, it was like mud, like silty, and like threw a spoon on and caught a sheet, like a not a big sheet fish, but um, there was just like random shit that popped into my head. But um, the sheet fish seem like they're like a low water, like bottom of the water column type of. I always, every time I've done good catching them or gotten into them, it's like cast and like let that thing sink down to like a low, slow retrieve on whatever you're fishing
1: yeah usually that's the case unless they're feeding in like some shallow slough or something but especially the bigger she fish are going to be in deeper water so yeah um, they like being down there they feel a little safer and everything and if they're spawning they they like going down a little deeper to to broadcast spawn there's big groups of them little blast out eggs and stuff interesting
0: and they're fall spawners that's
1: right yep and oftentimes they're spawning like uh, there's a river just north of town where you can go and spear fish for whitefish and that sort of thing and oftentimes the she fish will be in there with all the other whitefish species they all sort of spawn near each other at the same time in the fall.
0: So. Interesting, just like shallow gravelly, yeah, type but, stuff.
1: But those bigger she fish will spawn in deeper waters compared to like the little round whitefish or at yeah. least Cisco or humpback whitefish. So yeah,
0: I had uh, yeah for years. I I think I've only ever caught one whitefish, and it was it was actually <laughs> in a big river, like fishing the mouth, fishing for pike and stuff. And uh, I thought it was a she fish at first. Like, I thought it was a small she fish, and we got it in, the it was Frank's rubber net that he just got, and, like, had had a hole immediately torn in it. So, we like, pulled this thing up, and I was like, holy shit, that's a white fish. Like, that was a, it was a big white fish, and uh, caught it on a spoon. That's, wow. Okay. And then right through the net oh, and no. back into the water <laughs>
1: it'd probably be a humpback whitefish probably or a broad yeah. whitefish which both of them are great eating too yeah uh, but you don't catch them very often so are they cool pretty oily
0: them. yeah pretty oily like i've heard of people smoking different whitefish but it can
1: be yeah um and you know people get them in that spear fishery and they say sometimes they're a little mushy but that's like when they're spawning so oftentimes yeah. the flesh isn't as good there but they can be pretty oily for sure yeah
0: so. no interesting and uh
1: yeah but, yeah, there, there's actually a big uh, um, spawning area near Fairbanks in the Tanana River. Um, a bunch of those whitefish come in, broad whitefish, leased cisco, humpback, and shefish. So we have a bunch of them nearby, but in that silty river, it's kind of hard to, to find them. A lot of people will go to the sloughs, you know, uh, up and downstream on the Tanana River yeah. Fairbanks to catch them. But it's, yeah, pretty hard to – they're around, and they don't get as big as, like, my favorite river up on the, the Kobuk, you know. Yeah, that's kind there. of the legendary
0: – Yeah. Well, because they, then they'll like spend out in uh, is it Norton Sound out in front of Cotsbu?
1: Norton Sound is by Nome, yeah. I think so. Cotsbu Sound is yeah. the one in front of Cottsby. Yeah. yeah,
0: where people ice fish them in the in the salt yeah. water. Yeah, <clears throat> that looks like a lot of fun too. I got which to do You that. did do that, yeah. yeah
1: for work <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh one of the cool projects we're doing right now is putting these pop-up satellite tags on shefish we know a lot about where the fish spawn out there in northwest alaska they go up the kobuk and Selawik rivers um but they also spend a lot of time along the coast we catch them like as far north as uh point hope people are catching them and as oh, wow. far far south as shishmaref and we assume they're all coming from that source in the kotzebue sound um, but we have no idea really what they're doing out there so putting these pop-up satellite tags on them as an attempt to get out kind of their movements out along the coast. Um, Because in saltwater, you can't use like radio tags and it's such a huge expanse, it'd be hard to do flights to To try to follow them. them. Pin them down. We use these satellite tags, which are pretty cool pieces of equipment. They're about uh, $4,000 each. They ride on the outside of the fish. So you attach them sort of to the dorsal fin they look like this little black light bulb and they ride on the fish for like a couple months or you can set them up to 16 months and they collect um light data which will tell you sort of the latitude longitude um although that's kind of tough in the arctic when you have light 24 hours sometimes it's hard to calibrate those um those locations and then depth so you can see if they're diving if they're chasing um for, for food that sort of thing and then temperature so we get all that data uh, the tag is, is triggered to pop off the fish. It goes to the surface of the water, transmits all the data to a satellite, and then we can download it. Um, so we've we uh, put out a bunch of those this last year. Some of them through the ice uh, in Kotzebue, some out in these coastal lagoons in Cape Stern National Monument, and then a few this last fall on the upper Kobuk River to sort of get a a good spread of different, um, you know, she-fish. Yeah,
0: because you ought to be able to, like, track their movements through their whole range. Yeah,
1: and uh, maybe different ones from different places are doing different things, so trying to spread out the tags a little bit and hoping to get some more tags. You know, they're so expensive, it's hard to get a lot of them out. Yeah. Only a little bit of data, but hopefully it'll be really good data. Yeah. Um, we've had a few that have popped up and reported and then the the bulk of them will pop up this next July so hopefully you get lots of good good information from that
0: nice heck yeah is it something that where they so they, they detach and then they make contact with the satellite and then yeah. record all the and then do you, they will I'm it's probably not worth recovering them, but that, are they just a one and done type you, deal? You can
1: recover them and you can get like half off another tag if you get them. Oh, gotcha. uh, or certain brands, you can just reuse them. Um, so it is advantageous to get some and, and there's a guy named- Yeah, if they're
0: four grand a piece, yeah. it might be worth a flight around to- <laughs> Yes,
1: totally. Um, there's a guy named Mike Courtney. He works uh, for the university. Uh, he's down in, now in Juno, but he oh, did- Oh, yeah, I know
0: Mike. I know Mike Long- yeah, same, I mean, same group of-
1: yeah, same group of friends, and he's yep. a big sheep hunter and everything. Yep. Um, he did his master's project at UAF using those tags on Dolly Varden in the Woolock River up near Kivalina. Some of his fish went over into Russia and that sort of thing. So he's been advising on this fish project oh, cool. a lot, and he's uh, really knowledgeable about how to process all the data. And um, But he would get, you know, fishermen might might have caught like a few of his um, dollies or whatever, and so yeah. he, could, he got the tags back from some of them, and then he would get a discount on his next tag or whatever.
0: So. Nice, yeah, that could definitely add up when you're talking about spits of that is
1: geez i was kind of worried we tagged a bunch of those fish right in front of kotzebue i was worried they'd all get caught all get caught
0: and then just thrown in yeah yeah,
1: but we haven't had anybody uh report the the tags yet we have like a reward listed on the tags to incentivize people to send them back in um so there is a lot more of those she fish than you think like there is an estimate that twenty thousand of them get harvested every year in kotzebue sound so there's the population is a lot bigger than many people think so yeah
0: yeah, well, to be, yeah, sustaining and still be like that abundant. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. And that's like a long time historic. Yeah, exactly. They've been harvesting fishery. the same
1: amount for forever, you know? So, yeah. unless something changes with the environment, that harvest is considered to be sustainable. So. Yeah.
0: No, that's pretty cool. It. Uh, one thing up in that country, like, do you, uh, I don't know what I want to ask. I just think of this story. Uh, what well, was, I think it's in Reardon's book, The. Book about Frank Glazer talked about doing some. He was going up to on the no attack, maybe to do some wolf control. And but he went up there in like October or something before he was gonna like go in and camp, like through freeze up and then like dog mush out or something. So he had all his dogs and yeah, he talked about bellying out on the ice on the edge of a pool, just like full of I guess it would be Dolly Varden, not yeah. char, right? Yep, and just. Yanking them out one after another. So it's, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you wonder how, so if some of those fisheries, if they're still, if they're still like that or not, I know a lot of them aren't, you uh, know, or, or James Carroll's book, like talking about up on the salmon river or salmon fork, or the porcupine, maybe it is hmm. like just gaffing chums Wow, for his dog. Like he'd go up to his trapping cabin and, and he would, uh. First he started like just lining a boat up to his trapping cabin, and then he like talked about getting the first like twenty five horsepower outboard or something. It was like so primitive he'd have to rebuild the thing between trips. Wow! Like you bring all the stuff to rebuild the motor, and uh, like get his boat up there, and then just like gaff enough chums to feed his dogs. For all, most of the winter, or whatever.
1: Yeah, well, you can't do that anymore because nope. of the salmon crashes on the Yukon. <laughs> yeah. But in Northwest Alaska, I think a lot of those, like the Dolly Varden and the Sheafish are doing as great as they ever were, which is really nice. Good. But no. unfortunately, on those Yukon River tributaries, people haven't been able to catch their chums and Chinook in the last <laughs> five years or so because of the salmon declines.
0: But. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's that's like a it's a very that's a very visible decline for a ton of people. I mean, I yeah. I remember like. I mean, it was not long ago, but I, I mean, I remember what, what, 20 years ago or less than 20 years ago, there was a couple of years where like, there were so many Kings running in the, in the China where they made it like a three a day limit, you know, keep, you know, and then it's been how long since you could keep a King in the China. I think
1: 2019 or 2018 was the last time you could keep one or even like catch and release for them. Uh, yeah. I remember I'd go to a few rivers near town here and be able to do that. Um, but yeah, it's been a while and that's really sad that, uh, it's, you know, kind of tanked that much recently. Hopefully it'll rehabilitate, but
0: yeah, um. I hope so. You know, like, I don't know me in it. I think it a lot depends on what you, what you follow, <laughs> you know, what you see depends on what you, what you follow, especially, you know, getting, getting like, yeah the, uh, let's see if I try decide what I'm going to, what I'm wanting, mm. trying to say, but like, uh, I see a lot of stuff popping up about like trawlers, you know, trawl Bering Sea trawling. Yeah. You know, like it's you know, and some of the arguments seem pretty pretty uh convincing that that like that could have a lot to do with some of these like there's a lot of like mysterious fishery crashes. Yeah, maybe. In certain areas. And some fishery, like, but other, places, you know, are doing like good, other but places are doing good.
1: I don't know. You know when a resource gets thin, everybody points fingers at everybody. Yep. Nobody wants to take uh, the responsibility and maybe uh, take a bullet and harvest less or curtail things. They just want to point the finger at others, unfortunately. So for those salmon... Um, you know they travel through so many environments, freshwater, mm. water They're traveling these huge distances. They're just subject to all these sources of mortality. So it's yeah. really hard to say what the you know overriding factor is that really knocked them back. But you know there was commercial fishing for them in the past on the on the Yukon. Of course, the subsistence fishing now. There's the the trawler bycatch in the Bering Sea that people are worried about. um You know that's like the walleye pollock fishery. So yeah, uh, like fillet of fish or yeah. Walmart fish sandwich or, type uh, like stuff. Like
0: imitation crab. Yeah, they're catching stuff.
1: they're catching. You know, Know some Chinook and chum salmon that are destined for the Yukon and that fishery, yeah. but it's an argument about how much of an impact it has. There's also a disease that was affecting the Chinook salmon called ichthyophonus, where people first noticed that in the 90s. They were trying to dry Chinook salmon and like it wouldn't dry. It smelled almost like this fruity. Oh, I think t- I remember reading kind of something
0: stuff. about that. Yeah,
1: and so that was you know another thing that was knocking. Uh, you know, some of those uh, they think that disease was basically killing off fish before they could successfully spawn, and oh. that's still around. So there's just all these different things. You know the ocean ocean conditions that that might be kind of pounding these fish they, they're just getting it from all sides i think
0: so. yeah well i mean and to relate that like more i mean the sheep like the sheep thing now and that's mm-hmm. i think it's when i i like keep saying it with sheep and maybe it's the same way like the same kind of line of thinking with fisheries is like to not not like jump to conclusions necessarily or every or every or just simply pointing out that everyone wants to point fingers yeah you know like the sheep thing you see all these retarded proposals and stuff that, that really like doesn't, it, you know, <laughs> I try, I, I, and I like looking back, I know like where I've been on the wrong side of plenty of things, you know, things looking back and I try to like, try to get better and try to think about things more critically. But you know, like you see proposals, it's like a proposal for anything or like a, I'm just someone like stating an idea. It's like, all right, well, what, what is this really addressing like specifically? And would it, it really realistically help? make a difference. Yeah. You know, like the, the current thing is the, a you know, like there's a proposal to eliminate being to, sh- being able to like shoot sheep based on age. Oh, So well, like okay. if you shot a full, uh, a Ram that was not full curl, but he was 12 years old, it would be a, a sub legal.
1: Huh. Yeah. That's weird. And, it's and, hard enough to find a legal one, you know, with the yeah. methods that you do have. So I don't know about well, that. In the, ba- in the
0: basis is that, like, the basis or stated, like, reason for the argument is because, like, sheep are, like, in a – there's some areas where they, have like, have been declining, um, mm-hmm. but the overall situation is, like, weather – I wouldn't call it a decline, but weather-caused, like, population disrupt what, right. what the word. Because it's not like it's just in a lot of areas been a slow, steady decline. Some areas it has, but – yeah. Yeah, um, from
1: what I understand, it's sort of like uh, the well, rain on snow events. It was two, events it are, was two,
0: two winters in a yeah. row that like knock the shit out of them. Yeah. Um, and
1: the hunting is so regulated. You're only harvesting those mature rams. I don't think that would have, I'm no wildlife biologist, but I don't think that would have much of an effect on them because those, those, you know, big rams have already had a chance to breed and everything and contribute to the population. And there's
0: like, and there's some interesting stuff. Like, I mean, I I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Wayne Heimer who I like kind of talking about his book and his research who, and, and that's just, yeah, a couple episodes ago, but they, uh, um, there is like, and Wayne kind of saw the same thing, but like the famous, uh, North American, I mean, one of the like founding guys for the North American model of wildlife conservation at Valerius Geist had a thing with wild sheep where he had like a theory or, or, you know, evidence to show that like the absence of mature rams, like results in a little bit more chaotic rut. And so oh, younger okay. rams tend to have higher mortality earlier, which... <laughs> You could look at it different ways, you know, if whatever rams are doing the breeding are like not long for this world because right. it's just harder on them. But then yeah. um, I think that in like Wayne, you know, ch- they seem to think, show, have evidence through their study that that was the case. And once they, but once the thing was, there was like their study area. Well, they had a few study areas that like Denali Park, um, like Dry Creek, Central Alaska Range, and then over in the Toke Management area. And they were seeing like these healthy, like healthy lambing and and like kind of population dynamics in Toke where it had already gone to like a full curl or it was under like a trophy management status right. and it was all three quarter curl or like you know five year old, four or five year old type rams um, in central Alaska range. And there were like not to say there weren't any, but there were like very, very few eight year old rams around. And right. so they had all these weird things happening and. Once they went to seven eighths and then shortly after full curl, all of a sudden, boom, like the whole pot, you know, they were, they went from basically not having any mature rams to like much more abundant mature rams and healthy harvest. So yeah, like, oh, the whole takeaway from is that, you know, you harvest old rams, you know, you harvest these, like you said, mature rams that you're not. You're not restricting the rebound of the population, you know, and part of Wayne's point was like, there's always more like there's always something and and they've shown it through uh, age studies after harvest is like, yeah, a lot, like a lot of the Rams that get killed are eight years old, but. Also, a lot of them are like almost as many of them are nine years old, and then there's a section, you know, a little bit less or 10 years old. So, you get like all those nine and 10 year old rams were mature for a year or two before yeah. they got harvested and sure. were able to like fill that role within the sheep population. Um, I like, yeah, I'm just like going completely sideways here. <laughs> but, um, but so the, the basis, there's the argument for this, like not being able to age sheep on the, or shoot sheep based on age is they're saying, oh, because there's a lot fewer rams, people can't find a, or, you know, they can't find a full curl ram. So they're just going to shoot a rant, try to age a ram and shoot it, which some people like, I mean, some people do, but the, the implication is that there's all these more seven, six year old rams getting killed hmm. because people are doing that. And I don't think that's the case. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Even they're are you know, like looking at um the local sheep research biologist did a presentation covering like harvest data and on all that stuff, and like the age structure is very consistent. Hmm. it's there's a lot lower harvest, but there's also like half the number of sheep hunters there were three years ago,
1: yeah, yeah, um, sure. I think, yeah, from what I understand, like the lamb recruitment is the big issue the last couple of years, yeah, of it, bad winters, yeah,
0: so. I mean, it knocked it not killed a lot of adult sheep, I think, but also lambs and this this last like event lined up with, um, is compounded by, we had two poor, like 2012, 2013, 2013, 2014, one of the, like a couple of those two, it it like lines up. It's almost exactly like 10 years after a poor lamb, two poor lamb recruitment years. So you're having just like a much low less showing of, of lists like age class, yeah. but like there's, there's still rep- like representatives of that age class there. Anyway, that's like, you that's can get interesting.
1: Yeah. really, I haven't done too much research into that. So yeah. Interesting to hear. I don't want it. to do
0: any research <laughs> into it. I just want to hunt them. But unfortunately <laughs> you like, you kind of have to pick your things that you're going to put your time into paying attention to. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um and because like one like nobody can do it all and and know it all. It's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just do I do my best to try to be informed about it. That's but, good. Um,
1: You're doing more than a lot of people, I think.
0: So. But uh, this, yeah, the the like that proposal. It's just like a band aid to try to like people are going to be I'm sure going to be introducing all kinds of crazy wacko stuff. <laughs> like there's already like on a normal baseline, there's already all sort of Some wacky shit that people all the put time. in. Yeah now it's going to be even worse and unfortunately I'm sure the board of games gonna like be feel pressured to do something right but is doing something just for the sake of something
1: sometimes it's a step backwards yeah
0: it's if it's not gonna like I don't know any serious like any serious sheep hunter who would be like nope I'm not gonna not hunt sheep if like taking a break from it would be like a a tangible benefit or like would really be helpful but anyway yeah like it's it's difficult to age rams on the hoof but there's a lot of rams that never that are never going to be full curl
1: yeah that's what I've heard you especially know? in certain areas where they just grow really slow. It's, so. yeah
0: it, it or just horn characteristics I mean excuse me it's uh you know and not just like I think people need to take it very seriously but like you're telling me if I like so like that ram behind you is a perfect example I hope that's the last seven year old ram I ever kill um he was in a bunch of rams that had one, well, my buddy Frank killed the the oldest, biggest one in the bunch was, we knew he was old. He was not even close to full curl. Hmm. He was like a Texas long, like really wow. wide, like super cool sheep, <laughs> but we knew he wasn't full curl, but you could t- like looking at him from, even from 800 yards, you're like, that's an old sheep. Yeah. You can tell by and the you body see, see, shape. Yeah. Sometimes. And you it's... could see the density of the rings and like, like that's an old sheep and he's in charge. And then you know, I saw that one. It's like, he's full curl, but he's only seven. So I wasn't, I wasn't initially going to shoot. I didn't, that wasn't the sheep I wanted to shoot, which, you know, like shame on, you know, criticized me all you how it unfolded. But, uh, there was two other Rams that I could, that were not full curl, but I could tell they were at least, uh, I was like confident that they were at least eight or nine, but I hadn't gotten a really good look at them to, be 100% sure yet cuz looking at those two sheep they were both older than this sheep like body wise you know characteristic you know a lot of the factors you can look at and this is kind of a dinky little i mean not a bad one to get out of the gene yeah. pool but he
1: just had some good genetics to get that Yeah he just his
0: his like tight curl genetics where yeah. the other ones are not tight curl or genetics or looping out yeah and so uh they ended up like we you know we had a plan that they were going to come down and feed we kind of skirt above them we're on the same ridge line just across the saddle and um and we'd get above them pick out you know i'd get a better like you know three four hundred yard look at or closer at one of those other rams and pick one of those other rams and uh they ended up walking right to us and frank shot the bigger one and then i kind of just had to. i maybe i did in hindsight i was second guess myself i probably would have stood there and i could have or gone a couple hundred yards off and i could have sorted it out but at the point I'm like well I know for sure that one's that one's legal
1: yeah you got to take it so. and
0: uh, I just decided yeah whether right or wrong I decided to shoot him and uh, but the, the, my point is like it's like if a person can reasonably like pick out an older not legal Ram that's for sure you know eight nine even ten well Franks was 12 wow that's an old one and uh and just choose to harvest a mature ram over a little bit younger ram that you know it's probably going to live a few more years like it's just stupid it's not <laughs> yeah <laughs> if and if yeah, you know i could get behind it maybe or behind some kind of version if there was like a huge uptick in sublegal ram harvest but like hmm. there i i just don't think there is i think overall probably there's fewer sublegal rams than a lot of previous years just because overall the ram harvest the curvus is lower. way down and the percent anyway yeah that's, that's all like yeah. diverged from sheep and or from fish I can't well, that's help fine. stay that, off that, the sheep that's really
1: interesting <laughs> to me too but yeah I think the point is there's a lot of this finger pointing that goes on and and maybe proposals that are uh, I don't know, geared at punishing certain groups that really yeah. it's not productive, you know, whereas where people sometimes need to self-reflect a little bit about their own impacts on whether they be like for fishing, uh, commercial fishing or, um, you know, a sport fishermen definitely have impacts too. So instead of pointing fingers all the time, it's like, I wish people would just be like, okay, the resource is in trouble. Let's just – everybody do what you you can instead of blaming everybody else. Everybody do what you can to try to limit your impact. But oh, yeah. Unfortunately, totally. humans don't operate that way most of the time. No. They like to find scapegoats or whoever's the most visible target yeah. to blame. So. Yeah.
0: Well, and probably – I mean probably in some ways like like sheep hunters or imagine there's some like factions of fishermen who have like always been whining about stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Well, and another, well, other thing I, it was interesting cause we, you know, I'm, I'm glad you reached out, um, kind of like spurred all this on. It, uh, was getting to give me in touch with, uh, uh, Jen with TRCP. She had wanted to talk, talk about, you know, they've got a big, um, kind of campaign on the Ambler road opposed to it. And it right. was, it was good to like, I definitely got some perspective. I, uh talking to her i didn't mean for like over an hour um cool wow that's great and uh kind of like what trcp is and it's i think i tend to be like kind of suspicious of, <laughs> of a lot of a lot of uh you know big organizations especially and i try not to be just inherently suspicious of anti-development because there's a lot of like development stuff like people <laughs> pushing development that are shitheads too sure you know um
1: but there's got to be a balance. Like oh yeah, Alaska for, does need certain you know things to be developed. Yeah. To, to stay a state to have money and that sort of thing. Oh so. for
0: sure. And I think I think the the biggest thing for me is that, and I I mean I try to like be improving myself in this. Is that uh, I say it's the biggest thing, and I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> that that ha- yeah, it happens to me frequently. I had something good going, and then I just it just gets lost. But um. I think just being objective and like really looking at like a benefit versus cost, and I mean you know like anytime you're cut, I think anytime you're cutting into the pie, so to speak, up here of like relatively intact stuff, like it's got you got to be you know like it's only fair and right to like carefully consider it, sure. not like up we're just going to go all over the place and tear everything up. Yeah. type I mean, of thing. I think there I think there's like there's things on both sides that like got have to be considered.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um you know that Ambler Road thing, you and I both really like the Brooks Range and, yeah. and recreating up there. It's a special place, so a lot of people feel really strongly one way or the other about the road, but um, like for me, being out in the Kobuk a lot and just seeing how beautiful it is out there, I don't like the thought of the road cutting through. But a lot, of, some of it's emotional for me you yeah. know, too. But uh, you have well, to think, I think about the practical sense yeah. of things too. So
0: yeah, well, and I think, and that's like something I think that I kind, I mean, like I just haven't been banging around in that area. So like I, you know, I think people have to. Look and, and like acknowledge. like right, what's me just like not wanting to see something there versus like legitimate concerns and like how you balance all that out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's uh, what irritate like what what I'm really really like kind of like gets my radar up or whatever is so. And it was interesting talking to Jen. I still have questions like on some of the stuff that gets campaigned in the lower 48 is like all the arguments. And, and a lot of times I think the specificity of, of these like concerns or arguments for or against whatever get lost. Cause all the general, but like the general public just <laughs> gets manipulated one way or another. A lot of times are, sure. or, or it's not, it's not effective to like say, all right, these are my like, actual concerns versus like up oh, it's gonna or, you know anwar was kind of the same way it's like up oh, it's gonna re- it's gonna kill all the caribou it's gonna do this <laughs> or that like people like respond to like real powerful things and so yeah. that uh which you know talking to jen i was like the the caribou my and i was talking to you about it a little bit too um mm-hmm. the data on the red dog mine road right impeding or changing like the behavior of those caribou um hopefully like i want to i want to Cause it was Jim Dow, I think that had yeah. the, you know, cause I, I asked Jen, I was like, well, like what study are you taught? Are you like referring to? Cause the one that, the one that just a couple years ago that they presented to the subsistence board it was like a ten-year study, but only like thirty animals came within seven miles of the road, and it was like four of those animals that acted weird. So I was like, "Yeah, that's a pretty small sample size." Yeah, but they have
1: um, some new unpublished data that yeah. sort and of that's supports what, that. And that so yeah, that's what I was getting with, at. With a like, bigger I, sample size. that's something
0: I would I'd really like to see because yeah. if it, if that's what I mean, if that's what a, a good data a good data set shows, then that's a lot easier to get behind than you know cuz i think i think people i'm just skeptical of like manipulation of stuff i know like like the subsistence board thing like they'd use that and yeah. I, I didn't hear any any reference to more de- so i was left with all right they're arguing that four animals like to the subsistence board but you know that's only like the little bit i can see so i'm i'm and jen was going to like Get me in touch with Jim, I think, to, okay. to yeah, hear more some, about that because that was just – that was like one of my big questions.
1: Yeah, there's some updated data on that now. Um, and, you know, the the media and sort of the – some of the outlets just like uh, they take something that a biologist has said about oh, yeah. a concern and then they take it to the extreme, you know? Like, oh, yeah. so well, they
0: And I, I think a story, a story I had written kind of referencing that study and what the Park Service biologist had presented – and I talked. To, I talked to the bio. It was Kyle Jolie. I talked mm-hmm. to him, and he was like very objective and like measured in in everything. And because it was like an ADN um, article, where they kind of took liberty, like tweaking what he'd said to me mm. to like imply something that he didn't imply. Yeah. Um. It was. Uh. But yeah. So me, it media definitely. And I yeah. try not. I try to everyone's like everyone's got their things they're passionate about and that they're maybe like arguing for. I try to at least stuff like that like I'm not even like I, in my baseline isn't like super pro like pro ambler road or anti I, I lean more against it especially now like I think there's some like more subtle but reasonable concerns to me. Yeah, I think, um,
1: like you said, that cost-benefit thing, like, what do we? What would we really get? Yeah. Um, do we know what we're getting, what the impacts are going to yeah. be? But, yeah, from, like, a fish standpoint, you and know. that's one
0: of the things, like, I wanted to hear from you is, like, what are, like, some of the, like, legit – because, well, back in, you know, I think you had sent me a study back when they, you know, when, like, the the last time the Anwar stuff was all hot and, you know, people are writing all kinds of articles about it, right. destroying the caribou herd and um, and I'm like, well – like forty miles away, there's a totally intact caribou herd. Yeah, you know that's it. anyway. Um, but that that study was like you know pretty clearly pointed to the like the 3D seismic surveying being the most impactful, like potentially most dangerous, like part of that.
1: Right, the thumpers and the noise and that sort of thing. Was, yeah, any erosion, you know, like so. yeah. Yeah, But for the, yeah, the Ambler Road, I think one of the big concerns I have is there's going to be all these culverts and, you know, stream crossings over all these amazing wild and scenic rivers. And the thing I noticed with some of the, like the road to Tanana, for example, they put in all these culverts and that sort of thing. They were well engineered initially. But, um a couple of years later, like driving across these all the culverts are jacked up, you oh, know perched yeah. up the you know the fish passage is just non existent in some of those streams now, so there's going to be you know hundreds of culverts that would get put in on the ambler road, so I worry about fish being able to get where they need to go, and then also um like the red dog is kind of a nice example of what could happen, so the red dog's like a sixty some mile road this ambler road would be a two hundred some mile road. They, they have found, there's a couple of published studies that have shown like these heavy metals that uh, get escaped from the, it's called like fugitive dust. From that like, comes the from ore the, trucks. Or trucks. they That gets dispersed out into the tundra, you know, up to a couple of kilometers away. So I'd be worried about that getting into to streams and getting into the food web and into fish. Um, so, you know, we're, we'll see what's in those baseline studies that we're doing now yeah. and what's there. But that's some of my big concerns. And of course, like if there was a fuel truck that God forbid fell off, you know, came off a bridge or something over the. Kobuk River because it's going to cross the Kobuk and a number of its tributaries. Yeah, that'd be horrible too. Those are my primary concerns. And then as like a hunter and angler that really likes going out in the wilderness and that sort of thing, I was just thinking of like I did a seven day float on the Kobuk where I didn't see another human. You know, Mm -hmm. all you hear is maybe a plane here and there. but Thinking about the Hall Road, like hunting along there, you can hear the the trucks, see dust plumes sometimes like ten miles away. Um, you know, depending on the wind direction, I just think it would totally change the character of that area, and I. I guess going out there, I just felt really strongly about how special it was. Yeah. Um, I was kind of thinking of, you know, the pebble mine thing. There was the the moment where like Donald Trump Jr. He had been to some of those streams at Bristol yeah. Bay and fished and stuff and talked to his dad yeah. and actually kind of turned him around a little bit on it. Yeah. So I think if some of the, some people just went out there and saw the specialness of the place and what might be lost. That's what I think about a lot is that it could potentially change some minds, but you know, if you've never been out to those places, it's just hard to sort of go to bat or care much sometimes.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, yeah, it's, it's, but that, that's like an interesting detail that I like the, you know, how, like seeing how culverts have like degraded. Cause like, that's kind of one of their talking points, but the average person is like, like we got a million culverts. Like what's, what's the deal. But that if, yeah, if they, the, you know, the, the road maintenance, would be like a bit cuz it's going to be a huge i mean the Dalton highway is like constant maintenance project right. and
1: uh we'd be relying on the the mining company that's that's maintaining the road to yeah. maintain all those culverts and everything i'm yeah. sure you know they do good standards initially but um you know their plan for maintaining everything yeah. and if the money would be there we don't know so
0: well and uh i mean i it seems like it's probably a lot more speculative than for a, like a lifespan than like prudhoe bay too
1: yeah um, they don't have any um, like really strong prospects they've got i think four potential mine sites and none of which they've really you know have a really strong idea of how much uh, money you know how much ore they're going to get out and how long the lifespans of those mines will be so a lot of it's really up in the air and one thing they're saying now is that they're going to remove the road after they put it in after the mines do their thing i really doubt that i think it would end up being like the dalton highway where eventually it gets open to the public and becomes uh, you know a public road which might be attractive to some but certainly might degrade the wildlife and fishing you know the opportunities out there so yeah
0: i mean the access like it would it would part of it partly would be certainly be nice but yeah what you know how how easily would it be to maintain and and like a lot of like what ifs and could be's yeah, I mean it might not be worth yeah, might not be worth it. I uh well, and just the economic you know from the economic standpoint, it's like is our state's economy going to be like hugely benefit by it, benefited by it and it I don't think Doesn't so. seem like it will. No, it's
1: a foreign <laughs> mining company that's coming in and um you know there's already been quite a bit of public money spent on just the surveys and everything. They'll be taking the ore out and sending it overseas to so be processed so we can yeah. buy it back. So it doesn't really make much sense to me i don't see why alaskans should support it like we're not yeah. getting any sort of benefit so yeah and it's know. even
0: like you compare like fort knox you know which is a gigantic hole in the ground yeah for foreign, foreign mining company but it supports like a lot like a yeah. big part of our local economy
1: yeah and it's been there for a while and uh you yeah, know they they're always boosting community projects that sort of thing yeah. uh, i don't i don't know i mean um you know who knows about the the people that are going to be potentially developing yeah. the ambler Road. and i
0: don't think you know, i mean out there I don't think that it would even be, like, that beneficial to, like, the local, you know, the regional economy out there. Because it's, yeah. you know, just the way the way things work in the... Bo- it's not like everybody in the surrounding village can just drive to work or no. would want to or...
1: They'd have to... I guess they have the option to build their own villages, build their own connecting road yeah. to it. And then they could bring in, like, uh, fuel or, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Not have a lot of public transport but they could bring yeah. in certain goods but i don't know how many villages would actually pay to get connected up and would it be really beneficial in the long run i'm not sure yeah. a lot of people in the area are, are just split like right down the middle about it um you know people are worried about their subsistence uh, opportunities yeah. but they also see the you know the potential economic benefits so it's uh yeah a very polarizing issue in alaska mm-hmm. right now but yeah i I don't know. I just, such a cool place right now, like an intact ecosystem, like you mentioned earlier. And so I feel like it's so great now. Why change it for not a very good reason, not much of a benefit to Alaskans. Um, you know, when I was reading those Bob Marshall's book, Alaska wilderness about kind of the Brooks range and the gates yeah. of the Arctic there, I don't think that it's changed a whole lot since he has been there. Like there's still these great wildlife populations, still mm-hmm. all this beautiful, quiet landscape. So I hope that we still have places like that. That's where I, kind of my happy place. I like being in those, yeah. those places. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, so that Ambler Road, there's a comment period open until December nineteenth, and then like the BLM has probably a year to basically decide on the fate of the road. Um, so we'll see what what goes on yeah. there.
0: Well, part of the deal is like I remember that the Ambler Road being talked about for.
1: Yeah, decades, 15, right? years. It's you know, just or like, more. Just so like then it's pebble, like then it comes like, around yeah, again and again. So. It's not
0: like, and part of it's like, it's not like a a surprise where, you know, and I, in it, you know, I don't know, like, it's all, they're all important issues. I get a little like, I mean, being obsessed with sheep, I get a little, well, sheep especially, I get a little, uh, like, I, you know, I would like there to be more knowledge and, advo- you know, advocacy that, sounds dorky, but, um, just taught, you know, a lot, there's not nearly as much focus as I would like to see on like our, all our access to federal land, just getting gobbled, like getting taken Hmm. hand over fist every year. You know, the, like the, you know, I kind of, at least in my mind kind of predicted that when they did, when they did unit 23 and there've been a few smaller closures in the past, but like the unit 23 one was a big one. And, uh, for, for the caribou, for the caribou for yeah. like, where the solution, the closure did not like solve the equation. No, it it's didn't not really like, have you a know,
1: biological basis, uh, for effect. Yeah. I mean, no, it's more like of not a, any
0: kind of biological it's basis. It's more like a
1: knee jerk type thing, you know, blaming, finger yeah. pointing, just like we were talking yeah. about, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and I, th- I mean, I think since Anilka, especially the, f- like some of the federal agencies or people within the managing some of these federal agencies just like have a track record of like regulating to remove people like human interact, human intrusion on the landscape. I mean, not everybody feels that not, you know, like not everybody feels that way. And like a lot of the, the, at least the, you know, the biologists I've talked to with the feds, like they're just like level headed, but I -hmm. think it's the, like the political,
1: yeah, certain people are like are, that. And, you know, with the federal government, sometimes we get a lot of turnover and people yeah. that are coming from outside of Alaska that really don't get the culture and the dynamics in the state. And so no. those people can uh, sometimes cause some damage.
0: No, well, sure. and so. I think that, I think that, like, I don't know, Alaska, as far as, like, federal land managers, Alaska is, like, a great landing place for, like, ideologues, like, preservation. And it's always, like, the preservation conservation Battle.
1: Yeah, to some degree, but Alaskans are so pragmatic. Like, even the hippies hunt here, you know, people just um, realize that multiple use and uh, letting people kind of let live and do what they need to do is a way of life. Like coming from Montana, it was way more preservationist in certain parks or, yeah. or places like that, where yeah. it was like really militant. Like you'd have to have uh you know, even if the park service, for example, was going to install something that would benefit them, like a radio repeater that would help with safety. Yeah. They would have to like themselves go through all this permitting process. Yeah. And so it, it can be really, um, really preservationist down there. I think Alaska is a little more, uh, I don't know, laid back i, to I some think degree.
0: it de- i think it depend. i think it also depends too but there, I like i would i would argue that there there's definitely a like managed through regulation like for like minimal it just uh, like the like the sheep you know the central brooks range sheep closure thing doesn't make any sense like none of the biology like supports it that i've yeah, scene. Um, and but, it's all but the- then
1: again, like, if the resource is on decline, like, it, maybe it makes sense to just do what we can do. At least we're doing something, even though maybe it's really not helping that much. But maybe, I mean, every little bit could, could help, so some, I don't know. I
0: mean, some people, you know, some... Yeah, I guess it goes back to, like, deciding what you want to do if it's, you know, just to do something. But I, I, I mean, I genuinely believe that there's, like... The, the the subsistence board closures are serving more nefarious like more, purpose sometimes. well more like n- different agendas yep. yeah yeah and I you're think right. it's I think it's an excuse I think there are like like I'm sure in the national Park service there are people who are genuinely like oh if we stop hunting sheep you know if we if we you know put a pause on hunting sheep then they'll magically recover but like I i mean none of the I don't think there. I don't think there's any like teeth behind that. But you know, then you get you get like yeah, like one guy being responsible for closing down the Central Brooks Range, yeah, but and then he, the chart the Yukon Charlie too.
1: Yeah, I heard about that coming up too. But the Brooks Range one is you know subsistence and sport closure. Yeah, so it's not yeah. like
0: no, it's not. It's, it's not, not like, like Unit Twenty
1: Three where it's no. like um, just sport uh, hunters are being penalized. Yeah. I think the idea behind the brooks range one and, and uh the fellow that proposed that is genuine but some of them can be seen as like um, trying to push people that aren't local out yeah. of oh, yeah. federal public lands like
0: they're all they're all a little different yeah um
1: not there the know. denali caribou yeah like the well Unit 13 that 13 one was a big deal too i didn't well that dive one into actually
0: that much, like but. the state asked for to just okay. t- because the state closed it, and then they asked the the feds to close it for subsistence hunting too, just because of, I see you know like what seems to be more legitimate population concerns. Okay. Um, so each one's a little different. Yeah, e- like- each one is each one is different. Um, But like you know, and then the, the Yukon Charlie, there's not even an existing subsistence sheep hunt there, and okay. the the whole area, like it was a dismal survey. Um. I like, no one, I don't think was expecting it to be like, a unaffected, but, you know, it, accounting for like surveying your, I mean, your, your surveyors are very fallible, especially in areas where there's, where sheep are down in the trees a lot right, and, yeah. uh, and really scattered in like low density areas. But there was only one, like average 1.4 rams killed per year in the entire area.
1: Yeah. That's, I don't think hunting is having much of a No, that. I mean, so you're going to save there. that one ram. <laughs>
0: You know, where, yeah, it's just like, there's not, it doesn't make sense. That and, one just and it's, sounds already, like a, it's already a low... Pre- well, in the Yukon Charlie has a long history of, like, conflict with the Park Service, like, right, bullying and, people uh, around. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that and, one uh, sounds
1: just like a for optics rather than uh, the biological reasons. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's, already one, very
0: could... tou- it's already a very tough... It's already a very tough... The Yukon Charlie, I mean, tough access, right. very low pressure anyway, yeah um, in the, bro- I mean, I would argue for the Brooks one, well, you close down the, co- if it's about like hunting pressure or hunting like t- harvest of the sheep, well, why not leave the, the bow hunting corridor open? There's like one ram every few years gets killed. Like more rams sure. get killed by avalanches <laughs> every year than probably get killed in 10 years. Yeah. um, Like it just, uh, like the, the stuff doesn't add up. And you try not to like take into, you know, I try not to like just take what. It is into account, and not like reputations of of like sentiments, you know, because there's there's like a there you know a lot of I don't know probably best not to get into that, but <laughs> um, I just don't and and I mean the, that's yeah the like the central Brooks was like generally pretty low. I just don't I think the 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 proposal was like very poorly written too, like, and in not in not like there's no, like, scientific, it's just... Yeah, it was just observations. All the, uh, but you know, and very limited observations of a big area that you can't, yeah. you can't...
1: But the person that put that together does live right there, you know, yeah, so if I you mean, are going to listen to somebody, I guess that's a good person to listen to, but yeah, I... I just don't
0: think what, what was, you know, I'm not, like, discounting what he was seeing, but he's also not seeing all... All of it, for sure, and I, yeah, I just—I don't know too much about disagree. that, but
1: I assume there was some biological impetus behind that too that supported what he was saying. At least that de- just there was a decline, and that anything we can do, we should do. I think was sort of the spirit of that proposal. Although he, that proposal was worded a little weird in some ways, kind of um, accusing recreational hunters of killing a lot of non-legal rams without much basis but yeah i think that like i didn't like that part of the wording that could have been left out but i think the spirit behind it is genuine trying to you know help that population so yeah and i mean we'll see if it helps i don't know
0: yeah i don't think so well it kind of and even well brad winling the local research biologist that kind of screw well he it's a Project he he finally did get started this year, but he had to do it all on the, the hunted side, all on state land. Um, cause he was already like in works with the Park Service to do this study on uh, exactly like do, do in hunted areas is the younger ram mortality higher because of of in theory like relatively fewer mature rams, mm. and they did they call he collared like twenty five rams in the park and in on on state land um across the road basically and next year i think he's going to call her a bunch of ewes and do that and i mean the the hypothesis is that is that the hunted area will see like higher young ram mortality but he's like Hmm. he's like i'm going to be objective about it but i don't think that's gonna be what it be how it works out
1: yeah that'll be really interesting because all all the i mean
0: all the the area yeah all the well, I mean, up there, everywhere, I mean, even in Denali, like a lot, like all the non-hunted areas are experiencing the same.
1: Same sort of declines, the same, even though yeah, hunting the same is low not a numbers, factor. Yeah, even though so. it's
0: not a factor. And uh, so I guess the question is how does it slow rebound by taking a few mature rams that are living on borrowed time anyway. Yeah. I don't know. I don't buy it. Like I don't Or know. does
1: like chasing around sheep, some people, you know, might chase them around during hunting season. Does that cause them more stress?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would say I would pretty much for whatever my non, non, non degree opinion is worth. Like, uh, I mean, I don't think, I think it's extremely minimal impact. I mean, the, the rut is what is their major stressor, you know, as far as like, what gets them moving around and mm-hmm. not, not eating as, as well, right. The rut re- and like just poor food, you know, like events that cover up their food. Right. Yeah. But, uh, I think it's all ridiculous. I think it's all, I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but. <laughs> well, I think you've done a lot more research
1: than me on it. So yeah. I'll defer to, you no, your knowledge that No, but it's there. good. Like,
0: and I, like I point out, it's, so I like, sometimes it's like you get argumentative about stuff, but it's also good to get challenged Sure. Yeah. On, on ideas and stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. You know, like, uh, in Sweden, if you do a graduate degree, you have somebody at your defense that's the antagonist that has yeah. to challenge you on everything. It's nice. It, it's good to be able to, yeah. Volley ideas back and forth and have a respectful conversation on those sort of things. Yeah. So it's healthy.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, um, yeah, we'll probably let, probably get out of here pretty quick, but, uh, okay. what, uh, I'm trying to come up with some like good way to get this back into into fishing. <laughs> What's uh? And we didn't even talk about. You said you didn't have an have have a like a perfect answer. Probably like I was thinking of, like through fishery like fish like fish questions. I've always wondered you know like noticed in different areas how uh, like pike for example will be like. Really, like, kind of brilliantly green in one one fishery, and then like black in another one, and like lake trout, even in the same area, sometimes like lake trout will be totally different colors. Yeah. Um, I'm just stating that because I was wondering about that, but uh,
1: yeah, you're right. That's a really interesting. I got phenomena. the deer, I got
0: the deer in the headlights <laughs> look right now. Um, yeah, so but I know. yeah, what's, I mean, yeah, do you know, is there any like, have you studied at all stuff like that at all or
1: i haven't studied the coloration of fish that's sort of uh i don't think we know that perfectly but on fish they have these skin cells like chromatophores in their skin that that can change color um and So I think, you know, certain fish like the pike and burbot, you definitely notice like in a lake where the water is clear, there's maybe more color in their environment. They often have more vibrant colors, Hmm. more different patterns, like that sort of thing compared to somewhere like the Tanana River where it's silty, there's low visibility for the fish. They might be really washed out kind of dull colors. So I think, um, you know, I'm no expert on this, but I think the pike and burbot are able to subconsciously gather information on the color of their environment or the patterns and then that gets translated to those chromatophores in their skin and i don't think that's the case for all the fish but um you know in certain cases it seems to be that way especially for those those pike and burbot are the ones that really jump to mind where like uh the burbot on the Tanana river are kind of like black and, and muddy color yeah. and white. But if you catch one in one of the lakes that's actually connected to the Tanana, and we know through studies that those burbot move back and forth, so they're yeah. likely changing color, you know, whether it's over a, a period of days or weeks or whatever, they're suddenly like this really vibrant green and, and yellow, the burbot in particular. Yeah. So I think there's some degree of just color matching, especially those predators that rely on some degree of camouflage to get their prey, mm-hmm. like pike, um, the burbot. The lake trout are different. Um, like you said, within a lake, you might see fish that are really different. I'm thinking of um, down near like Paxson area. Sometimes you catch these lake trout we, that are called like red fins. They have these really bright red pectoral and pelvic fins. Interesting. And they look way different than their other you know, conspecifics in the same lake. I don't know why that is. If that's like a, a thing between male and females or if it's a genetic thing or just happens to be – sometimes within a lake you get – um, with a single fish, you get different ecotypes. So they're like, um, they specialize in different habitats. One might be more benthic oriented or like to be in shallow and eat certain things. And then they end up looking a little different and behaving a little different. So yeah. that's just kind of spitballing. I don't know for certain, but, um, sort of what I've picked up too. And I definitely noticed those color differences, especially with the burbot, I think.
0: So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So what, what do you have a favorite fish to target? The she-fish for sure. She-fish, yeah. <laughs> those Dolly Varden
1: on the North Slope are awesome as well. Uh, just the colors they get. Like they have these bright orange bellies, um, dark green backs, and then those big beaks that they have. Yeah. And they're in sometimes these really small, clear streams. So uh, It's really fun to just sight fish for them. You can see them. And uh, what I look for... Um, is the off ice, you know, these big sheets of ice that are in some of the the tributaries on the the North Slope streams. That's indicative of spring action. Uh, So in the winter, all this water percolates up, percolates up and it causes these big areas of frozen, um, sections on the river that might stay the entire summer. You know, they might not melt. And uh, so those spring areas are where the Dolly Varden like to spawn. So if you look for those off-ice areas, oftentimes you can find a an area that the Dollies are running to to spawn, and that's a good place nice. to intercept them, you know, in the fall. Um, so I look for that and then also, like, gulls that are circling over. So it's kind of a fun uh, treasure hunt to try to find oh, yeah, the, those dollies. Cool. Um, and they're, they're really good fighters, real strong, like any of the char, you know, the, the lake trout and bull trout, they're all known to be really strong fighters, not acrobatic or anything, but just they're, they pull hard, they'll give you a good run out, out of your backing and stuff. And nice. so, yeah, I think those are my, probably my favorite to go after.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it can be over, I mean, over a lot of these big rivers. It's always like fascinating me people who know like right where to fish insert. I mean, I know a few things, but you know, like where to fish in a certain spot or, or, you know, you're in the tundra. It's like, well, how do I even, aside from just like walking up and down the river, how, yeah. you know, it can seem like a river has no fish in it, but if True. you know, like where to look.
1: Yeah. It's so boomer bust in Alaska, like uh, a place that might have, just be full of fish one week that it could be empty the next week, you yeah. know? So knowing when and where to be is a, is definitely a challenge and a lot of trial and error for me. Like when I first came to Fairbanks, I didn't know anything. I'd, you know, just kind of relied on, um, like looking things up online and Mm -hmm. maybe a few old timers would give me a tip here and there and occasionally i'd blunder upon something just by chance or luck but i don't know what i really like doing now is delving through like these old data reports about fish and spawning areas and places where certain species are caught you can just uh, gain so much information there and even if it's like a report from the 70s or 80s during the pipeline Mm -hmm. days it still might um give you an indicator of like a lake to go to or a stream to go check out for a certain species. So oh, yeah. that's kind of my thing. I, this time of year in the winter, I'm just looking through old reports and trying to find new places to go. So
0: nice. Heck yeah, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming over, Kevin. Yeah.
1: Thanks a lot, Tyler. And, it's great and, catching up and I yeah. uh, appreciate you having me on. So yeah,
0: no problem, man. Um, and, uh, is there like anywhere people can follow you? Um, like not that? too active not on really. the social
1: media. <laughs> I, we have a, for wildlife conservation society, um, we have a, like a fisheries website there that goes over a lot of our projects and a little blog that talks about our field work activities. So, cool. um, that's a good place to check it out. It's a really nerdy URL. So it's the, uh, the species name of she fish, which is leucicthes, um, dot org.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to look
1: up the she fish species yeah, name Look, find look up she
0: and then use yeah. that. It's nice, man. Well, I appreciate it.
1: Cool. Thanks a lot, man.
0: Yep. Uh, now, if you uh, enjoy Tundra Talk, I appreciate it if you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can just email um, podcast at com or just go to the like contact button on the website. Thanks.